Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, Paul talks about his trip to Japan and Hong Kong, talk about the Wei Te Shen's upcoming film and theme park, CJ remakes their own films in Hollywood, and our films this week, When Sun Meets Moon and Destiny, The Tale of Kamakura. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here once again in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk and none other than the fragrant harbor itself is Mr. Kevin Ma. We're apart again, Paul. Yes, parting is such sweet sorrow or some such thing, right? Uh Yes, uh, I was the, the last time we were, our last episode, in fact, we recorded in Hong Kong, and uh, at the time of this recording, that's already several weeks past, I guess, uh, when we did that, but, um, you know, it was a it was a fun, if not frantic, trip. Um, those of you who, you know, know me well know that uh, I had to, we started the trip in late April, and I had to, basically, I was there for about five days, and I had to rush back to the U.S. for... Uh, family personal matters which i won't go into here but um and needless to say i bounced back and forth between the u.s and hong kong and then the u.s and then hong kong and then japan um in the scope of about three weeks and so that was about um you know six or six or eight flights and lots of different time zones and i'm still my body clock is still (laughs) to this day still quite messed up and not sure what we're doing. But besides that fact, um, we had a really good trip. Um, my I left my wife and the kids there in Hong Kong. You know, it's, that's my wife's element. My mother-in-law was there to help with the kids, so she was fine. And she had a nice trip, and it was good to have the kids over there to see the in-laws, and especially my five-year-old, because she got to use her Cantonese a lot more. <laughs> You know, <laughs> like one of the things that we're, we're afraid of is that, um, you know, being stateside and her being enrolled in in schools in the U.S., that she's not going to have that reinforcement except at home. And she's already shown that she's kind of not that interested in doing self-study, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, even though we try and, you know, push that on her. But being back there, being with her grandmother and just, you know, being in that environment day to day was really good. And so I think that's something that we're definitely going to try and keep doing at least once a year is um, if we all don't go back, at least send her back to spend some time there. Yeah, I never got to, uh, I never, well, I mean, your your daughter was always kind of shy, but then we actually got to like play together when we when we saw each other. And like, I think I was sort of moving in between, I remember speaking Cantonese to her and like, I'm the yeah. first time I've heard her speaking Cantonese. Yeah, yeah, she still has a she has a very heavy accent, despite the fact that she spent her first couple years in like pre kindergarten in Hong Kong. She's just always had that accent, 
And my wife says that comes from me, <laughs> so it's my <laughs> fault. Um, but yeah, they had a good time. I had a good time also, um, especially in Japan. Uh, this was my first time being in Japan for an extensive trip. I'd passed through Japan before, um, but this time we were there for over a week, and um, it was overwhelming is the word I like to describe, and I knew it would be overwhelming <laughs> because I'm a big Japan nerd when it comes to things like anime and movies and uh, just otaku geek culture in general, and I was yeah, that's always why I was that's why I was so surprised that you you still you, you actually all your years in Hong Kong you never got to go to Japan because I always knew it would be overwhelming. Um, you know, very early on in my life, <clears throat> when I was studying my bachelor's degree, there was a decision point I had, and it was to go in in one of three directions. The first direction was to go to study a master's degree in um, Asian theater, I think, at <clears throat> the University of Hawaii. That was one path I was thinking of. The other was going to Hong Kong to pursue my interest in Cantonese and, and Hong Kong movies, which I loved. And then the third avenue was to go to Japan, the other sort of cultural area that I loved. And it just, the way that, you know, fate had it turn out, I met some people at college who had you know, one was from Hong Kong, one had lived in Hong Kong, and they were going back. And so this window of opportunity opened up that said, the Hong Kong path, uh, that's that's the route you're going. You know, so in a different universe, in a parallel universe, different timeline somewhere, there's a Paul who ended up going to or teach and work in Japan or something and, uh, you know, lost his life over there somewhere buried in <laughs> otakuness. Um, and so, yeah, I, I always knew that once I'd get over there, I'd just... You know, it it would never be enough time. It would be completely overwhelming, and it was. Um, there was so much I wanted to do and just not enough time to do it. But it was a really great trip. And I remember we talked before I was asking, you know, oh, when you were in Japan, did you, like, marathon all the Terrace House episodes, the current ones? And you are like, no, I didn't have time. And now I completely get it. <laughs> because <laughs> there I was. I was, like, every night going home, I was like, tonight I'm going to watch Terrace House. And then we get back so late, and I was so tired, and we were planning what we were going to do, do the next day. And I was like, nope, we didn't do it. But I did download all the episodes to watch uh, offline, and so I've slowly been watching those, even though they've already released the second season on U.S. Netflix. I think I got two episodes of the third season while I was there that were currently airing. Um, but, yeah, I did the did the train man thing, went to um, Akibahara, and, and just lost my mind in in just rows and rows and floors and floors of geek culture that was just endless. And you just don't, there's so much stuff there. You don't know where to begin. Um, you know, entire rows devoted to star Wars toys and of course, Gundam toys and, and anime properties I'd never even heard of. And it was just, like I said, overwhelming is the only thing I can use to describe it. There was a square Enix cafe that we passed that I wanted to eat at, but it was pouring down rain the time we were there. And I was like, Oh, we'll come back. And we never went back because we didn't have time. <laughs> and, you know, just so much going on. I did spend an extensive amount of time, though, at a DVD shop and bought nothing <laughs> because <laughs> this is the thing, especially if you, I mean, I, I really feel for people who are super big fans of Japanese cinema that doesn't get a lot of international play because you've really got to learn hardcore Japanese because they do not subtitle their stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. even a lot of their homegrown Japanese movies, they don't even have Japanese subtitles as an option on their stuff. So English subtitles, of course, just forget it. 
and they're super expensive. I mean, it's like looking at movies there. Um, it's like back in the day when DVDs were first released in the states. You know, like thirty bucks U.S. and upwards for a a single current DVD title, and even the discount stuff is not super cheap. So um, I ended up just saying, no, I'm not going to get anything because I can. A lot of the titles I wanted, I know that would eventually make their way over to a Hong Kong distributor with English subtitles and you could get very cheaply on, you know, Yes Asia or, or in Hong Kong directly. So, um, yeah, I, I came away with very little in terms of swag, <laughs> I would say, uh, during the trip. My one big regret, though, was I actually missed the theatrical screening of um, Godzilla City on the Edge of Battle, which is the second in the trilogy of Netflix animated Godzilla films. That got theatrical release, I think, on the 18th of May, and we left on the 17th, and I was like, oh. Mm. And I was like, I really wanted to extend the trip by a day so I could go watch that in the cinema. And, you know, there was just no way we could. The way we had, you know, booked the tickets and organized our Airbnb and everything, there was no way we could have uh, extended it without paying a, you know, going to a big hotel and spending a lot of money. And so, you know, regrets, yeah, I had a few. <laughs> But I still did it my way. Um, in Hong Kong, yeah, that would because of the back and forth. Didn't get to see near enough Hong Kong movies. Uh, but graciously, Mrs. Fox did allow me one last day before we came back to the States to just leave her behind and leave the kids behind and go out all over Hong Kong to various DVD shops and uh, have a, just a day where I could shop. And so I went to Hong Kong Records. I went to HMV. I hit... Um, Chum Choi Po and was like digging through old Laserdisc bins and stuff and um, just really went to town, found some good deals on some stuff and was very happy with the small haul that I was able to acquire. But again, it's we've talked about before, the main thing that kind of struck me was not really a lot of DVD shops left anymore and even the ones that were there, the ones that were tried and true. Uh, I went to the 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 mall at the uh, Ocean Terminal, uh, Harbor City Mall is it, I think it's called. Yeah. And they used yeah. to have a huge Hong Kong Records, and that used to be my go-to store for especially for getting titles in the legendary collection, the silver box release of like old Hong Kong movies, because they used to have quite a few titles there. And so I was like, let me go back there and, and catch up on some of the stuff that I haven't gotten yet. And I went, and I couldn't find it, and then I had to like look at the map, and they moved the store to basically, as Kozo described it, a closet. It's really just a closet now. It's this tiny shop with, like, a few shelves. There's, like, one small shelf dedicated to Hong Kong cinema DVDs, another to Blu-rays. Um, and, I, you know, I did manage to find a couple things. Of course, they have new releases, but old stuff, it's like there's almost nothing there. Um, so, so you didn't see the, you didn't go to the uh, huge HMV and Causeway Bay, or you didn't get to see the I new did, Hong Kong records in Admiralty. No, I didn't make it over there. I was, because because after you had mentioned that the, the one in Admiralty had moved and is bigger, I was like, ah, should I go over there? And I didn't make it over there. But I did go to HMV in uh, Tim Zatsui, and um, they still have a pretty big, decent selection. Um, but yeah, like the cheapy that I was my go-to shop in Taipo is still there they still have two shops there but again they're selling bikes and lots of other non-movie stuff now even non-tech <laughs> stuff 
um, just to, you know, just to make ends meet, just to stay open. So, um, yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of the extent of it. Um, one thing when I was in Japan trying to catch up on like what was current and what, what was going on, they had just released the DVD of the live action version of the animated manga series called The Disastrous Life of uh, Psychic K, for those who know it. And they made a live action version called Psychic Kuso, which I was tempted to buy. But then again, that was one of the ones that I looked at, you know, no subtitles. Um, and I was pretty sure it got a Hong Kong release. I'm like, I think I'll just wait for it to pop up on uh, Yes Asia, the Hong Kong version. Um, so yeah, if you're if you know that series or you're interested in that series, you're kind of curious on keeping up with uh, contemporary stuff. You can actually, I think that that anime is still running on uh, Netflix US, so you can actually catch up on that. It's pretty funny um, as as animes go. It's kind of like a cross between a sci-fi story but lots of sort of mole tau nonsense humor um, therein. So some funny stuff if you're looking for something new to watch. Uh, but, yeah, that's my trip. I didn't get to see everybody that I wanted to. Um, David Harris was in town, a uh, friend of the show from the U.K. Unfortunately, uh, our past just because of scheduling could not meet up. Uh, fellow podcaster, comedian Stephen M., who I contacted, also wanted to kind of meet up with him, didn't have time to do that, so... Next time, gentlemen, I hope, uh, in the not-too-distant future, uh, on the next trip, whenever that was. Of course, I did get to see Mr. Ma and Kozo and a bunch of the regular Hong Kong movie gang, and that was great. Didn't get to go see a movie together, which I'd hoped to, and as I said, I only got to see one Hong Kong movie, and that was the super normal, <laughs> which we're, we're going to be talking <laughs> which, about on a future none episode. Which none of us saw. Only yeah. you saw yeah. it. <laughs> that, that's, that's my burden to bear. <laughs> <laughs> it's still it's still playing at the Sunbeam actually. I think they're gonna keep that on to the next Supernova movie comes out. Well, they, they got to run something there. I mean, that's a that's a huge pricey cinema to just let sit there, right? Um, so yeah, that's my trip. Um, again, I hope to make it back over there. Hopefully next summer. We'll see. Depending on you know what's happening over here, but um, it was great to see everybody and great to be back even for a little bit. Yay! Yay! All right, shall we move into our news for this week? Here at the news desk, um, because we've been gone for so long, it's hard to sort of decide what kind of news to come back on. Um, but we'll do two quick pieces. Uh, something that came up today, uh, director Wei Tushin, uh who I think some has dubbed the uh, Steven Spielberg of Taiwan. He's made really, really huge hits like uh, Kate Number 7 and Sidic Bali and Kano. Well, he produced Kano and most recently uh, 52 Hertz I Love You. He is going back to his big budget sort of mode with a very, very ambitious project called the Taiwan Trilogy. Uh, it will be made up of three films and it's a period piece that goes back to talking about the root of Taiwan or the history of Taiwan going back about 400 years ago through three different tribes or three different groups of people um, and traces sort of the origin of the island or, or the country, depending on your political stance, I suppose. Um, but the film is a huge, huge undertaking. Of course, it's three films and he's not going to shoot that until next year or 2020. Um, I'm not sure where the funding is going to come from. I mean, he's notoriously, he's notorious for having trouble with uh, coming up with funding for his big projects. For example, Cedric Bali had to like 
uh, borrow money from 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 a lot of different uh, from his friends in the industry, and and I'm not sure if they even got paid back, but it was a huge undertaking. And I think Taiwan Trilogy is even going to be bigger. But before he's even doing the films, he's already announcing that he's building a theme park because um, the set for Cedic Bali. Um, after the film was, uh, I think, came out, they actually opened the shooting location for. Uh, there's a huge sort of park or this this little town um, that is totally a recreation of a small township in that era. They opened that for about a month and a half, and there were a lot of visitors that went, and they real and I think Wei Tishin realized that they could do something with this. So he is going to build, sort of turn the set, or he's going to be building a theme park that's tied to the trilogy. Um, and the place is going to be the land, the, the theme park itself is going to be called Formosa Wonderland. Uh, and it'll be recreating um, old school, really, really old Taiwan, like 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 400 years ago, Taiwan. Um, and and of course, he's not talking about how much he's going to spend, but he is going to sort of turn that set into a, a historical attraction for people to step into a, a sort of time tunnel back into the old Taiwan or what Taiwan used to look like. Um, and and that's going to be, I guess, built um, after or that will become the theme park or open as a theme park after the film is done shooting. But that is essentially the first part of this huge Taiwan trilogy plan that he has. Um, so, uh, that's something to look forward to, you know, it's not much, uh, film themed attractions in Taiwan. Um, you have the, 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 China, the central motion picture studio, which of course is not open to people because it's a, it's actually an active film studio. I think it still is. Um, but otherwise, I mean, you have to sort of just look for shooting locations to find any of this stuff. You know, the tank that Ang Lee shot, uh, Life of Pi in, that's not open to the public. Um, you know, all those locations, uh, studios, they're not open to the public. So it's cool that, that Wei Tishin is going to, um, not only built this this really historical history lesson for Taiwanese people, and but also um, have something tie, have something that's really uh, big this big Taiwanese cinema uh, attraction that'll be open to the public. Hmm. Maybe in the future they can you know expand it with uh, Jay Chow Land. <laughs> what was it? Uh, the rooftop. They can he can rebuild the rooftop from the rooftop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that sounds interesting. I mean. Uh, you know, I, I know that film tourism is a pretty big deal in other parts of Asia. Korea, for example, has a lot of uh, film tourism around both films and TV dramas and things. And uh, to some extent, you know, we were talking about this before. Uh, Japan has built up an industry around that, especially around like, you know, Miyazaki films and other anime films like Your Name, I think, are have proven to be uh, big draws for tourism as well. So, you know, if there's money to be made, I guess the old saying holds true. You know, if you build it, they will come. The thing is, Wei Tushin has, um, because of the the lack of money that, that you know, to, to, for his films or, or his trouble with, with fundraising, um, he has to come up with creative ways to make money, uh, to, to make a living. And and he's already expanded that. He, he built, um, I think it's a chain of cafes. Well, he, he started by opening one cafe in in, tai, uh, in Taipei. And I think he expanded Tainan. And I think the cafe is still around. And he said that um, when I talked to him two years ago, or last year in Udine, I asked him, how's the cafe doing? I think uh, it's already broken even. And that, you know, I think it's making money. But so, so it, you know, it's cool that that, you know Taiwan's well it's also kind of sad that Taiwan's most successful director in the history of Taiwanese cinema has to find 
these creative ways just to raise funds. I mean, it tells you sort of what kind of trouble that Taiwanese cinema is in. Maybe you should try Kickstarter. <laughs> I I would actually donate money if he because I believe in Taiwanese cinema and I like um, director Wei's uh, works a lot. So I would happily uh, put in put in some money for crowdfunding. But you know the problem is looking at judging by the box office of Taiwanese films, it's hard to tell whether whether Taiwanese audiences will go in with the crowdfunding. All right, next bit of news: um, CJ Entertainment, the Korea's uh, big biggest movie studio, um, they have been actually working quite hard at creating or producing remakes of their films across Asia. So, for example, Miss Granny has been remade in, like, 20 countries in Asia already, um, and most of them were hits. Uh, but now they're they're um, expanding, their, fo- expanding their, 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 I guess, area to the U.S. They're going to be uh, producing 10 remakes of their films in Hollywood uh, in the upcoming uh, few years. So, of course... One of the ten projects is Miss Granny. So there is a uh, American version of Miss Granny that's being um, uh, produced by Tyler Perry Studios, uh, and there's also going to be a Spanish language remake of the film um, that's I think being worked on. Um, and then uh, there is also Hide and Seek, uh, the horror film that's being remade. Um, and then uh, Phyllis Nigi, the uh, scriptwriter for Carol, is going to be uh, doing an omnibus film called The Vanish, um, which is actually The Vanish. I think I'm reading the book right now. It's about um, stories of people who intentionally disappear in, ja- in Japan. Um, people who might be under debt or they might be um, they want to disappear and then they sort of put them, make themselves go off the grid um, uh, but I'm surprised that this film is being produced as a CJ film but anyway that's been um, that's been produced that's one of the projects and then there is a remake of Aurora which uh, was a very lesser known um, action film there's also going to be a remake of um, of a Vietnamese film The Housemaid which was a CJ production um, and then there's also a film called Superfan, which is a sports drama about a uh, dedicated Korean follower of uh, Kansas City Royals, which is seriously the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Um, and then there's also another biopic uh, based on a marathon runner. And also um, uh, there are um, remakes of Sunny, which is a, a film that I'm a huge fan of. That's been that's already being remaked in Japan. That's coming out in August, and then that that will be remake in uh, the U.S. And Hello Ghost, which is another, um, I think, is a supernatural comedy. Just so you can tell the, from the title. Um, but yeah, CJ has is already a pretty big presence around Asia. They have uh, cinema chains in uh, both Vietnam and I think uh, not Thailand, but um, Vietnam and. Uh, not Malaysia, but I think Philippines. But anyway, several countries. Um, they were a huge presence. Um, in terms of exhibition, and they've also been producing films. So, um, they have produced uh, a couple Indonesian films, and I think they're producing. They were produced a Filipino film as well. Um, and now they're. Uh, well, I think actually also produced an American film, co-produced an American film called August Rush. That was actually a a uh, co-production between CJ and I think Warner Brothers. So. So yeah, Korean. Um, it's hard to imagine. Just twenty years ago, you know, no one knew about Korean cinema, and now twenty years later, they're producing ten remakes in the in the in Hollywood. You know, imagine uh, Hong Kong. I think I think Hong Kong can pull off this kind of progress in in such a short time. Yeah. No. When you mentioned the remake of Superfans, all I could think of was 
the Charlene Choi movie, but thankfully that's not the <laughs> movie being remade. So, um, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how some of this stuff plays out and if it can, you know, if the American audience can get behind it. I mean, what was the one you mentioned? The the Granny with uh, Miss Granny, yeah. Miss Granny with you know Tyler Perry or at least his company uh, doing a, doing a remake of that, right? Um, that sounds you know like material he could take with it you know take it and run with it so um you know it's, i don't know if i want if, i don't know if i want Medea to play the miss granny well, <laughs> <laughs> anyone seen the film will be like yeah i don't quite see Medea in that role no before we kind of sort of wrap up the news section though um any thoughts because you know the currently hot buzz news gossipy news out of mainland china which will be dated by the time this posts but um any thoughts on the whole uh, Fan Bing Bing tax evasion thing? Um, there's no surprise. I mean, yeah, I heard about it. Uh, yeah, something about how um, she signed a contract that only says ten million. She's getting ten million for a certain film, and then then she goes and takes another forty mil un- under the table. Um, you know, I I have to say I'm not surprised at all. I mean, I don't know any any any. Uh, a couple of articles I've read have said that. You know, this is this is kind of a kind of a witch witch hunt, and she's being made as kind of a a scapegoat for the issue to you know send a message. I guess I don't kind of kind of like the uh, what was the who who's the who's the homemaker over here? Um, what Martha Stewart? Martha Stewart. You know, like when they when they lambasted her for so called insider trading years ago, and they wanted to make an example of a celebrity, basically. Um, you know, it's it's some some have I guess alluded to that this being a similar kind of thing that this kind of goes on all the time. But you know, they decided to maybe crack down on and on it. And she's such a high profile person that she's been targeted. I don't know. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the the, the times I've worked with Chinese companies have been very professional. Every all our paperwork, they're very um, strict about paperwork and, and things like that. And I never had any under and i'm saying this on the record i never had any under the table dealings with where where you know i would say i take a certain amount and i take a lot more hmm. um i mean it would be nice but <laughs> but no whatever money that i signed a contract is what i got paid um so i never had any but you know then again maybe that's why i'm not making 50 60 million dollars a movie right because right. you know i'm an honest man um so, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you hear gossips about about misbehavior, bad behavior by Chinese film companies all the time, and I hear about the the essentially out of control salary, you know, is soaring. You know, you have to pay hundred million renminbi just to hire certain big names now these days. Um, so I hear about this sort of practice. Um, I mean, or at least about the exorbitant prices that that celebrities are charging to be in films um and you know just i heard today that one of the co-investors of it man free the one that actually was caused the most trouble the one that um was the shadiest the the real estate developer or something um the one that uh actually essentially might have a part to play in how um how uh it man free cheated a box office system in china and and created all these shows just to boost the stock prices. I mean, that guy is now uh, wanted by the Chinese uh, the authorities. I'm not sure if it's the same case, but it's certainly some kind of um, 
uh, coming down to on on bad behavior in the film industry. Um, and you know, I'm not surprised by any of this stuff. I'm just surprised that they finally got caught. I suppose. If, if, if I mean, I'm allegedly, surprised, allegedly. allegedly, that they're now being <laughs> wanted by, uh, you know, for allegedly committing these crimes. Thank you, Paul. Now I don't have to hire a lawyer. <laughs> All right. I think that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. When we come back, we'll have Kevin's review of When Sun Meets Moon. <laughs> And welcome back. So for our first film this week, a look at the Hong Kong film, When Sun Meets Moon. Yeah, so When Sun Meets Moon is the second feature film by Benny Lau, who his first film was Wong Kar Yan. Did we watch that together, Paul, Wong Kar Yan? No, we did not. Um, in fact, I didn't get to see that in the cinema for some reason and ended up watching it on video, and I loved it because of, of you know, Dynasty Connection. So, Well, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I saw it at the Dynasty, <laughs> so it was funny. Um, but anyway, this is his, his, next, uh, his second film. And um, it's under bigger, bigger company now. The first film f- film was done with Pegasus, which is why it had Karina mm, And now he's making this film Emperor, which is why he has Kathy Yuan, which was uh, a, a young starlet that's being uh, promoted by by Emperor. Um, the film once again delves into nostalgia in the '90s. Uh, except this time, it's a more traditional love story. In fact, it's a very o- old-fashioned um, love story. So the story, um, set in 1992, a heavy rainstorm causes a massive power outage in Hong Kong. That night, two young astrology enthusiasts, Moon, played by Kathy Yuan, and Sun, played by Daichi Harashima, who you may remember as the young boy in um, Derek Yee's... Um, um, Lost in Time, yeah. A very, very memorable performance, mm. by the way, actually, in, in that film. But now he's back. He, he actually spent uh, his adolescence in Japan. Um, he's now currently a university student in Japan, but he's also coming back out as a uh, to, to, uh, to work in the Hong Kong entertainment industry. Um, I guess coming back periodically to work. But now he's, you know, this is his first lead role. Um, anyway, Moon and Sun. So, sorry, can I ask, was he dubbed in this? Because it's hard to tell from the trailer. Yes, actually, I thought it was hard to tell at first, but once you watch the film, it's actually very easy to tell that all his dialogue. So the whole film was shot in sync sound, except when he speaks, and it's clear that someone has dubbed him. Mm. Um, so Daichi, Daichi Harashima actually speaks Cantonese. If you see um, clips of him talking to media, he speaks Cantonese, but he speaks with a bit of an accent. Like it's not the the, the vocabulary is natural enough, but the pronunciation is a little off. You could tell that there's a bit of an accent there. So um, they, he either recorded his own dialogue later on, but then hearing his accent, I'm pretty sure that that it's, at least it's dubbed in post-production, if not by himself, for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, anyway, uh, Moon and Sun, um, they, they meet under the starry night by the seaside um, that night. However, uh, and they start this sort of weird courtship, uh, a very subtle courtship. But then Moon's mother, played by Maggie Sue, intervenes, causing Sun to be admitted to a boarding school. Like the Sun and Moon, 
Naturally, I did not write this story description, by the way. Like the sun and moon, the couple could hardly see each other despite living in the same city, but their love endures, overcoming challenges from teachers, friends, and family. Um, so once again, this is set in the 90s, and it's all about nostalgia for the 90s, um, which I kind of, you know, it's kind of my era. I, I was born in the 80s, so I grew up in the 90s. Um, but um, whereas Wong Kar he was um, uh, doing it with a sort of offbeat uh, story about searching for this girl, making a, a sort of romantic comedy out of it. He's doing this very old-fashioned, star-crossed lover story here. These two, you know, kids that just want to be together, but then their their families are against them. The odds are against them, and and a son is supposed to move to America with his dad in a couple of months or something like that. Um, but it doesn't feel really romantic. The problem here is that the, the characters are not really believable. Um, so Sun, he's this rebellious kid, and and you know all you know from beginning to end is that all you know is what he doesn't want. You don't know what he wants. Apparently, he wants to stay in Hong Kong, but you know that's not really to me a strong motivation for a character he just doesn't all you know is that he doesn't want something he doesn't want to be friends to people he doesn't want to be nice to his dad he doesn't want to move to america he doesn't want to leave hong kong and he just spends most of at least the first half of the film acting like a dick to everyone um there's a thing about cinematic bad boys if you want to have a cinematic bad boy a rebellious kid to be a romantic lead you have to have infuse some kind of charm there must be something that makes us like him right you know um whether is you know he's got a killer smile or 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 he is sort of mischievous but still kind of nice to people or whatever but there's no real charm or likable point about him you know the whole part when he moves to boarding school he 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 sort of you know he sulks and then he doesn't talk to people and everyone is trying to be nice to him you know, and be welcoming and go oh, son hey whatever and he just sort of acts like a dick to them and but he's everyone still keeps like they keep trying to be his friend and then he, he never really sort of perks up so we're like you know why do i care about this guy why do i want why do i want him to have this nice little nice young girl as his girlfriend i don't care go off to america for all i care like do it go ahead and moon he she she is this sort of um script writer con- male script writer construct you know this sweet naive girl who has no friends apparently all she has is her mother and she works at this uh, stationery store where uh, a son it becomes sort of an important plot point because it's like this place where they could communicate sun and moon communicate without without the mom interfering uh and that's all she there is that's all there is to her characters again it's sort of sweet to the point of being naively stupid um and you have no idea what she sees in him um and and um she pretty much falls for him after like the second time they meet or something um but then you never convinced that they should be together uh kathy yuan um who's been in other films but i never recognized her this is the first lead role again um and of course she's in this film because emperor is producing it and she is being promoted by emperor um and she's fine the role but the thing is she's in her 30s she's like two years younger than me right but she's playing a 17 <laughs> year old this is like worse than Hollywood. Um, it's, she is far too old for the role. She's actually be playing the teacher, who, which is played by Amy Chan. She should be playing the teacher in the film, not 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 son's girlfriend. Um, and Daichi Harashima is really just a pretty face. He 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 soaks all the time, and 
the, the script doesn't give him much to work with. He just sort of plays this dick, and then, and then oh, there's a girl I like, so I'm going to be nice to her. Um, but then there's nothing that really makes his com- character convincing. So he never transcends um, being just another pretty face. It doesn't really work for me. But it's the side players that really shine. Uh, Maggie Sue, he, she's in the thankless role of being that mother. <laughs> that mother, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but she still has a couple of good scenes. I mean, at the end, she really explains herself and, and it comes off as, as fairly believable and... Um, even though the whole character doesn't really make sense by the end, but still, um, uh, she is good in her role, um, and she has good moments. Lawrence Chang and Danny Summer, they're actually quite funny as a comic relief. Lawrence Chang is the, the owner of the stationery shop, and Danny Summer is um, the, the school sort of caretaker. It's really weird that this huge boarding school that you know that clearly looks like it has hundreds, if not thousands, of students only has one caretaker. Um, it's really odd. Or one groundskeeper. It's like a groundskeeper really of the whole thing. <laughs> um, and and he's he's actually quite quite funny. Even though he doesn't, he never talks about UFO. I wish he would talk about UFO. I was expecting that gag, um, but it never comes. Amy Chang, like I said, she plays um, a a very supportive teacher at the boarding school, and she has a couple of nice moments. And she has a sort of a side story about um, with her and her boyfriend. Or non-existent boyfriend, I guess. Um, uh, and and there are a couple of good moments, and she's actually quite good. Um, and sometimes, you know, these side, Hong Kong actors, they're actually really good at supporting players. I, I think we always talk about Bob, you know, Bob Lamb, as, as a solid supporting player. We never want to see them in a, in a leading role. But then once they they play these supporting roles, they're actually good in small doses. And and I've never seen Amy Chan. I think I've seen Amy Chan act in uh, Let's Eat, the Chapman Tone movie. But here she really restrains herself and, and does a pulls out a pretty solid dramatic dramatic supporting performance. The problem is that the, the story is so lightweight that I really don't care if the kids stay together. It's not like they have life and death separating them, right? It's like, yeah, he's just off in Stanley, yo. It's not like Norwegian Wood over here, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, it's, it's like, yeah, she looks like she lives on the island. It, it seems like she lives on the island because you can tell, um, you can tell a couple of goofs. I will talk about the goofs later, but uh, it's clear that she lives on the island and he just lives in Stanley. So it's like, yo, you guys are on the same island. You guys are not even in the same yeah, different not, parts not of like the city. It's not like she's in Shangshui or something. I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like she's off in Trin Moon and I'm, like, like he's a Taiku or something, right? It's like, yo, y'all like on the same island. Um, and so, for for the, so, just to give a bit of context for anybody who's not geographically familiar with Hong Kong, because you've got different sections, but basically, from any point in Hong Kong, from like the northernmost point in Hong Kong to the southernmost point um, that's connected, you know, with like uh, M- MTRs and tunnels and buses and stuff, you can pretty much get anywhere within like an hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. So we're not talking, you know, <laughs> a massive distance, even if you're going like off to an island like Chung Chow or somewhere, you know, two hours and, and you're there. I mean, it's like, that's probably going to be the longest you're going to traverse somewhere. No, the fast, the fast ship, Paul, to Chung <laughs> Chow is 30 minutes. The fast ferry is 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, but if you were like coming from way north, like Chung Shui or Lo Wu, all the way down to the ferry terminal and then and then heading over, you know, you'd probably be an hour and a half, two hours to, to get to where you wanted to go. But, but I mean, it, yeah, it's like, you know, you're not... You, you, <laughs> It's not it's opposite because, ends of the earth here. 
Yeah, and it's only because the transit isn't exactly the fastest in the world. Like, it's just because the trains are kind of slow. If you got, like, Japanese trains, you could probably get from, like, one end of the city to another within, like, an hour at yeah. the most. Like, it's, it, Hong Kong's a really small city. This is why I never, like, I, I imagine wanting to make a, uh, do a Hong Kong adaptation of Norwegian Wood, and I realized that would never work yeah. because it's, like... So, so, yeah, this is where I'm going to come in. Uh, there are cute little moments of nostalgia. So, um, yeah, you were asking. Pager has actually become an important device. And the CG the CG budget is so cheap that the, uh, you know, the, the rolling text on, uh, on, 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 on the uh, on the pager? Yeah. They can't even make that look real. Like, it's that really smooth <laughs> scrolling. And you're like, that is not That's what a pager scroll looks like. Not what it looked like, nope. Nope, no, like that's the way to move, and uh, and of course there's a real there's a classic Jackie Chan ballad that becomes sort of a theme song in the film. Um, it's in the so it's very mid '90s, but the budget is is really way too low to pull off all this period detail. So at one point, you know how I could tell that she lives on the island because I saw a bus sign for the the island. You know, there's a bus company. So Hong Kong has different bus companies, and there's the Kowloon bus, uh, Kowloon motor bus, which uh, mostly does. It's in Kowloon, as I said, Kowloon New Territories, and sometimes they do cross harbor buses to Hong Kong. And then there's um, New First Bus or something, New Bus yeah. or whatever. Um, city Bus too, right? Well, City Bus and New Bus are the same, they're same parent company, and they do mostly the island and cross harbor routes. But there's one point where I saw a huge. But the thing is, New Bus didn't exist until like early 2000s because they replaced China Motor Bus. So there's one scene where she sits in a China motor bus bus, which is the yellow and blue, the classic design. I could tell. But then at one point, she stands on the street and in the back is a new first bus bus sign. <laughs> it's like, that's very like, and I could t- see the bus numbers. I'm like, those are Hong Kong Island bus numbers. So so they didn't have money to replace bus stop signs. So that's how low budget this film is. Um, and Paul, I guess you might like hearing this. Yes, Benny Lau pulls off a Wong Kar reference. So I guess there's some kind of Bendy Lao cinematic universe happening here. Excellent. I I wanna I wanna see the end credit scene. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um. I I think uh, Karina in comes and kills half of the Hong Kong for the Infinity Stones, <laughs> including so Raymond Benny Wong, Lau. right? Yeah, <laughs> Raymond Wong. <laughs> and and she gets the Infinity Stones and uh and then she finds one Karyon <laughs> with the Infinity Stones. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just weird that Benny Lau seems to think that Wong Kar Young was such a hit that he he has to pull that together in his second film. It's like I could have done about that scene. I could have done about the Benny Lau cinematic universe. Um, I can't say I was disappointed because I really wasn't expecting much. Um, and even then, I still don't think it's very good. It's just not a very good. It's a very old-fashioned story and not done very well. If you're doing this old-fashioned love story, you better pull off pull it off better than the old-fashioned films but you're still not doing it you know you're not doing up to this level then why you're reviving this old genre of a story that you know everyone has seen before already you know the young star-crossed lover you know separated by by parents i mean this is stuff like this black this and is, white this is, this is a moment of 60s. romance right i mean it's like no, you were look, saying you get out you, you need a charming lead right yeah, but this is all without the blood, without the bloodshedding. There's no real stakes here. Like at the end, it's just like the most, the one thing that you worry about is one of the characters immigrating. It's like, <laughs> oh, well, okay, and and it's always like you know, it's hindsight, right? Like hindsight is twenty twenty. Like 
you know, in 10 years, they could just add each other on Facebook, guys. Like, <laughs> what's up? Like, what's the big deal? Um, still, it's nice to see a Hong Kong film that's free of cynicism. It's very nice. It's very kind. It, it's just really way too focused on being nice instead of telling a credible, involving story. Um, essentially, it's schmaltz without any gravitas. So it's just really schmaltzy. It's like, it's like eating honey without any of the nutrients. It's like eating raw sugar really i mean raw sh- eating raw sugar doesn't give you any 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 nutritional benefit it's just really sweet to a point where you're just like what's the point of the sweetness what is the point of it um yeah and so so i i didn't really enjoy this yeah i i think i, I you know from what you mentioned about like the supporting characters lawrence chang and, and danny summer and others uh i think that's enough to get me to want to see it when i watched the trailer i was kind of like this doesn't really look like anything new because there have been, like you said, so many movies that have basically taken this route of, you know, the two kids are in love and they're separated because, like, one's from upper-class society or one's immigrating. And um, it's just, it's a very sort of traditional narrative for a story. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that there's really not a lot beyond that that's fresh or new, but um, I, I'm interested to see the Wong Kar reference because I think I like that more than than most folks. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put this on the must-watch list at some point in the future. You could literally just skip to the end to watch the Wong Kar <laughs> reference without watching any part of the film, and nothing would be lost. It's just like, oh, okay, well, that's a Wong Kar reference, that's it, and you can turn it off. Because there's nothing here that really surprises. I mean, you could see everything coming, you know. Um, So, yeah, that's it. Welcome back for our second review this week. Uh, we fly over to Japan for the film Destiny, the Tale of Kamakura. Now, Kevin, have you seen this one? I did. In fact, if you read uh, this month's Discovery magazine, uh, you will see a, a small feature um, about um, written by me about the uh, destinations that are covered in the film. All right. Excellent. So I'm looking forward to what you have to say about this. Uh, I did manage to catch this during my stint over to Hong Kong and Japan and uh, came away really liking it. This is a film that's kind of right up my alley in terms of theme and tone. This is coming from a director, uh, Yamazaki Takashi, uh, from films such as Parasite 1 and 2, Stand By Me, Doraemon, Space Battleship Yamato, and going all the way back to like uh, 2002 with Takashi Kanshiro, uh, Returner, right? Um and he's typically a director that I enjoy more often than not. Um, he, this is his second attempt to take a manga from the uh, author uh, Saigon Ryohei and turn that into film. Um, he, the first time he did it, actually, I don't know, was he involved? He might. I think he was involved with all three films. But there's a there's a trilogy of films based on the manga Sunset on Third Street, which he did. 
um, during the 2000s. Um, yeah, he, he did all three films. Yeah, um, which I, I have the first two films, but haven't watched them yet. Um, at some point, I'm going to sit down and do that. Um, so here he is, again, uh, taking some of that same source material. And I believe that the author himself also did some writing, some screenwriting for those films and for this film as well. The story, after marrying author Ishiki Masakazu, Akiko finds her life as a new wife anything but ordinary. Upon moving to her husband's hometown of Kamakura, she begins to encounter all manner of strange things, from wandering kappa to a god of misfortune to netherworld night markets. But just when she starts to adjust to her new life and the oddities around her, she disappears, and her husband, Masakazu, must delve into the netherworld itself in an attempt to find her. So this is from a very famous manga, um, also of the same name, called uh, The Tale of Kamakura or Kamakura Monogatari. As far as I know, the mangas themselves have never been uh, translated to English, but you, if you have some Japanese skills, some Japanese literacy, you can easily find them. They do have third-party vendors who sell them on Amazon and, and on eBay. Uh, he's got a very unique style um, to his art, and I really like his style. That may not appear. It's not a traditional sort of manga style for those of you who read kind of you know, contemporary manga. Um, but I think the uniqueness of his art style makes it charming and, and it, uh, you know, look it up. It may appeal to you, it may not. Um, so the leads are played here by um, Sakai Masato as uh, Masakazu and Takahata Mitsuki as Akiko. They also have quite a few veteran uh, actors here like Hinamana Jun and Tanaka Min, among others, playing supporting roles. I mean, it's a cute story, um, and there are a few there are a few heavier themes within, but for the most part, it's very family friendly. Um, in some ways, the the narrative is similar to the old Greek story of Orpheus, but only in sort of the very loosest reference. It's not it's not an adaptation of that in any sense. It's really just um, kind of uh, delving into the sort of supernatural world of Japanese mythos and tacking on this um, kind of cute romance as well. Uh, I think the leads play off each other really well. I think Sakai Masato's take on his frazzled yet unfazed writer uh, who lives in this, this strange world that exists in Kamakura um, is great and it plays well against the wide-eyed Akiko who's trying to come to grips with this life she has as the new normal of a Japanese wife who lives in this town. It's, it, for me, it was just the right amount of charm and endearment for those characters. And I, you know, by the end, I was kind of, you know, rooting for them. Um, so I think it's very Japanese by design, though. You can almost feel the story beats coming at times. I mean, for those who are familiar with um, Japanese cinema at all, I mean, pretty much anytime you watch a Japanese trailer for a movie, you can kind of see the sections. And you know, like by the by the three quarter section, there's going to be a pop song that's associated with the movie <laughs> that starts starts playing. You know, it, it's kind of like that. You know, it's, it's like you feel the story beats coming, but it, that's not necessarily a bad thing um, if you're being entertained. And and I felt I was. The production value is very good. Um, some of the designs as they get into some of the supernatural stuff uh, were a bit reminiscent of Monster Hunt, Monster Hunt Two, perhaps. And that's not an indication that they weren't borrowing the designs or anything. I just think it's an indication of the kind of state of CGI today in sort of non-Hollywood, fantastical or fantasy cinema. It's 
got this kind of amorphous blobulous look to it to a lot of the designs that they do um that's not a criticism in, in any way shape or form it's just kind of an observation that was sticking out in my mind as, as I was watching this. The final act, which takes place in the underworld, does use a heavy amount of CGI to create the vision. So it's got the green screen effect. A couple times uh, it pulled me out because, it, you know, and, and I see this too even in Hollywood films um, today where sometimes it's just a shot of actors against a green screen with some fantastical background setting and the lighting and the way the colors look it's just there's there's a disconnect between the real and the unreal um it's not entirely meshed well together and you do get that effect a couple times here but it wasn't enough to really ruin the movie for me but pretty much yeah the entire third act is this cgi spectacle it it felt like at times they were really trying to evoke a sense of wonder um through what i would call a, like a miyazaki like sense of place if you think of films like Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle, where you have these really kind of massive constructs, this kind of abstract world, um, they, they're, they're kind of painting that kind of, of thing here too, but in CGI. Not always 100% effective, but again, still, it was overly effective in being at least entertaining. There's a couple ongoing plot threads uh, about Masakazu's parents, um, and there's a thread where there's a misfortune deity who kind of attaches himself to their household. Those may not appeal to all, all viewers. Kevin mentioned in his in the last review about sort of like the the saccharineness of the story, um, you know, <laughs> being just sweet for sweet sake. And I kind of got that feeling here too as they st- started to wrap things up. Um, but again, it's this is feels like it's not being directed at a single group, but as families as a whole, so perhaps that's okay. You know, kind of like Disney-esque in some ways. The um, There are a couple murder mysteries that are thrown in because the thing about this writer is that when he's not dealing with his writer's block, he, he's, he's a murder mystery writer, so when he's not dealing with that and dealing with writer's block, the police call on him and he helps solve crime because why not, you know, because that's what, you know, it's, it's a murder she wrote kind of thing, I guess. Um, then... So there are there's you know aspects of of that which can like I said a little bit of darkness a little bit of of heaviness that you know for the youngest viewers out there might not be appropriate but I think if your kids are um, of suitable age this would this would be fine uh, the death god for example uh, looks like they're out of a steampunk period cosplay right <laughs> so it's not like you know it's not grim reapers and skeletons and stuff here. So, uh, you know, again, interesting designs and, and pretty good fun overall. If you're somebody who enjoys a bit of the supernatural with some humor, some whimsy thrown in, I think uh, this is a movie for you that you will enjoy. Uh, I certainly did. Kevin? Yeah. Um, well, because I had to uh, visit the location, so I'm quite familiar with the film. And um, it's a pity that most of the film actually isn't shot in Kamakura because the house is in a studio. Um, the the a lot of places sort of there are supposed to be Kamakura shot in again you know studio or other tempos that are not in Kamakura. But the opening shows off Kamakura is a really charming city if you ever been there. Um, it's a nice seaside place. I know a lot of people see it as a tourist trap and it is, but it's still there's a reason why it's a tourist trap because it's such a charming little seaside place uh, city. Um, and Yamazaki Takashi, uh, Takashi Yamazaki, 
Um, he's a special effects wizard, actually. He's a special effects artist before he became a director, uh, which is why his films tend to do a lot of uh, big special effects. Um, so, but then his past, his last two films, I think, was the Internal Zero, which was the, um, the film about the Kamikaze pilots, and the film, uh, and then there was a film um, about um, it was called Fuel, the man they call Pirate. It's about um, a very small family-owned. Um, uh, oil company in Japan, which is like it's like you don't expect Yamazaki to touch on these sort of duties type of uh, topics, but then you know Eternal Zero was a huge hit. But so, but it's nice to see him going back to that cute special effects route. So always, it was a more warm family stories, but done with, used a lot of special effects to to revive uh, old Japan, 1950s Japan. Um, so that was cute. Uh, done in a cute way, and that was a good use of special effects. Very interesting use of special effects. In fact, the third film starts out with a big Godzilla attack on O Tokyo, and and that's like when you see Yamazaki shining. And it's good to see him doing um, fun special effects movies again. Um, and I like it for that. I mean, the whole thing is kind of silly, um, but again, there's real franchise potential. I like how uh, the original manga I think involves. Um, the writer, the hero, um, solving, doing essentially what he does in the first half of the film, which is solving these weird mysteries. Sort of not Scooby doing it, but sort of solving these mysteries that have to do with the supernatural in Kamakura. And and I would like to see more of that. In fact, I thought the second half was not as good as the first half. It was it was more fun sort of exploring this world. Um, the the wife is sort of dumb. Again, is that whole naively stupid uh, female character and. It's just a bit unconvincing again, um, but still, I, I had a good deal of fun with this film, um, and it was just so much. It was such refreshing to just to see Yamazaki doing this sort of fun special effects movie again. I think that is going to do very well with the audience, and um, yeah, uh, I, I genuinely liked it. I know a friend who really, really, absolutely hated, hated, hated this film, but I'm like, you know, it's such, it's, you know, it's such a cute little adventure film and you know it's like well, i can't really inspire i can't it doesn't really inspire any hate for well, me what were the reasons for the dislike he just said the whole script doesn't make any sense the characters are stupid uh <laughs> there's no real structure he was just still going at this as a really serious sort of angle to it but i'm like you know it's a cute kids movie man you know i don't take it don't take it any seriously then i don't think yamazaki yeah i think the only thing that yamazaki took real seriously is the actual special effects part of the stuff but otherwise i mean the story itself is just like it's totally silly fantasy stuff has your friend seen the monster hunt movies <laughs> no no he absolutely <laughs> like hates he finds wuba creepy which i don't blame him for you know yeah wuba is creepy um so <laughs> yeah it's it's you know I, I I do definitely agree with you that I was much more interested in um, the, the first two acts of the film. Once they once they do get to the netherworld, it you know it's again they're kind of showing off the spectacle, and even like the main character, he suddenly is becoming like a kendo expert. I'm like, wait a minute, where <laughs> where was this established when he was playing with trains? You know, um, don't you know half of Japan are kendo experts? <laughs> yeah, apparently so. Don't you know that? Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I was a lot more interested in, especially through the the lens of the wife, because that's who I guess the audience is supposed to associate with more directly in, in the first two acts, because you're experiencing this world as she is, you know, mm -hmm. as kind of a newcomer. Um, and then they kind of take that away, and suddenly you're kind of thrust to the, to the husband character. 
um, you know, as he tries to un- un- unravel this mystery of where his wife has gone. And I, I really liked, you know, that. And it's true that you mentioned that there's not a lot of um, lo- location use because you do have quite a few sets and the house is a set. Um, and I would it would have been more interesting, I think, if they could have done um, a lot more actual location use in the film. But even so, I think the, the sets look really great. The costuming is all on point. Um, and, and the pacing, at least in those first two, those first two acts was, was pretty good. And I liked the, uh, I mean, it's a, it's not an overt use of special effects, but it's enough to, you know, sort of evoke a sense of wonder, um, going forward in, in, in that first two parts. And then they just kind of, you know, they kind of open the floodgates for, for that last act. Um, and I'm curious because I've actually ordered uh, a couple of the, the manga in Japanese, um, to see, you know, how closely, the story kind of, you know, follows along what was taken out of, of the manga for the film and whatnot, um, to see how that that plays out. So, it, it's it's definitely interesting enough film to sort of pique your interest if you're looking for something that has, you know, further connections to other media. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor, Snow's Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via our website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us at Facebook on East S West S. Uh, as always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Well, I am still the editor, the entertainment editor of the Cathay Pacific and Cathay Dragon Airways uh uh, in-flight magazine so discovery and silk road uh you can read those if you're on board you can also read my monthly mystical listicle not mystical listicle on um uh, discovery.cathaypacific.com um this month i write about two animated films well on the magazine i write about two animated films one is a brett winner and the other one is early man and for world film club i um and for us, also for our view, I interviewed Christopher Doyle. So uh, I included some quotes from him about Wong Kar Wai in one article and also um, talked to him about his new film, The White Girl. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at The Golden Rock. That's one word, The Golden Rock. I also sometimes run a website called Asia and Cinema. I still own the website, but I haven't had time to update it. Um, but right now you can read an interview with Derek Chu, director Derek Chu, about uh, number one, Chongying Street, which I still think is uh, probably the most important Hong Kong film of the year so far. Um, and it's a very in-depth interview about censorship and division in Hong Kong and what he thinks about co-productions. And I think it's a very eye-opening interview and a very interesting insight into what the Hong Kong film industry is like at the moment. Um, and you can email me at uh, Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. All right. Excellent. And please do check out our friends over at the Podcast on Fire Network as well for lots of their coverage on aspects of Asian cinema. Our next show, episode 257, I think I'm going to be talking about, at long last, 
the supernormal three yay <laughs> not that anybody really wants to hear about that movie uh but kevin what do you think you'll be covering well we don't have any hong kong film but it depends on where we're recording but i would like to talk about the trading floor which is uh fox television's first locally produced uh television series uh right now today tonight they're showing the fourth episode and the season finale episode five is showing next week so it depends on when we're, when we're recording but uh yeah i'd like to review that show if all we right. have a chance that sounds good so we'll have something for you all that and more on our next show until then, this is the East Screen West Screen podcast saying I'd rather be in Kamakura. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Uh-huh.